0: and welcome to episode 33 of The Other Side Australia for May 5 to 11, 2021. This is your weekly summary of the best news and views from an Aussie classical liberal perspective. I'm Damien Curry. In the show this week, the Prime Minister gets deep. We are more individually,
1: more than the things others try to identify us by, you by, in this age of identity politics. You are more than your gender. You are more than... Your race. You are more than your
0: sexuality. You are more than your ethnicity. You are more than your religion, your language group, your age. Scott Morrison makes an important values-based speech that lays down some hard truths for the woke identity politics left. Kevin Rudd claims that SCOMO's religious beliefs are interfering with his governing and that's dangerous, as a new documentary puts the spotlight on the similarities between Rudd and his longtime frenemy Malcolm Turnbull. A split emerges in the government over the decision to deny Australian citizens the right to return to their own country. And a leading educator asks, are we becoming a nation of cretins? All that and more in today's show. Just a reminder, we're anti-left and anti-woke on this program. We don't pretend to be neutral like some programs and networks do, but we don't cost you a cent. You only have to stay and watch our content if you choose to, and it's free. So let's go. I've been tracking the global temperature data from the University of Alabama's satellite-based temperature of the global lower atmosphere for a few years now. Watching the decline in global temperature from 2017 to 2019 sadly bounce back up again in 2019 and 2020. But good news, this year it's been trending down and the April figure has just come out showing the downward trend continuing and we're now at a negative temperature anomaly again for the first time since 2018. The anomaly is how many degrees the temperature is above the 30-year average. You can see April 2021 there on the right-hand side of the graph, just below the zero line. The red line is the 13-month rolling average, which is trending down again, so it's all good news. The anomaly is the number most scientists use to model their global warming predictions. There's still a recent historical trend upwards overall, of course, as the chart shows, but this new downward trend starts to erode the absolutist view that the increase in CO2 in our atmosphere is having a lasting and fast effect on temperature. It may mean we'll be a lot further away from the dreaded two degrees hotter level than the year 2100, and that we don't have to rush to net zero carbon emissions too quickly at all. We can get there much more slowly, and avoid the negative effects of abandoning fossil fuel energy too quickly, which would mean cheaper energy and fewer lives lost in poorer countries. (music) Queensland's Labor Deputy Premier Stephen Miles, a man who has, as far as I know, only held jobs in the union movement and politics, brought his government and our country's standard of class down another notch this week, it's not the first time Miles has played to the lowest common denominator of the rabble. At a Labor Day rally in Brisbane, he said this:
2: "Albo's here with us at Labor Day,
3: while Scott Morrison's charging five thousand bucks ahead to have dinner with him. What a contrast, don't we?" Know? A, 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 a
1: contrast, it was a contrast.
0: That was pretty clearly deliberate. One more time for clarity.
3: Well, Scott Morrison's trading five thousand bucks ahead to have dinner with him. What a contrast. Don't we need do Contrast. A contrast. Contrast.
0: Yep, that was deliberate. Have a look at this knowing smirk, followed by the eye roll. But Miles says it was a stutter that caused the faux pas. Just like Joe Biden, eh? Brilliant. Look, the guy is a child. He's not mature enough, experienced enough, or dignified enough to hold high office. He might be one day when he grows up. He's obviously fairly smart. But right now, he's a disgrace to the ALP, to Queensland, and to Australia. A Sydney-sider Catherine C said on Twitter, Stephen Miles, Queensland Deputy Premier, is really quite repulsive. And incompetent. He, of course, thinks he's brilliant. Leah Goodrum writes If he did say what I think he said, he owes the Prime Minister and the good people of Australia an apology. Any politician paid for by we the people should not speak in those gutter mouth terms. He's a disgrace to his party, voters, and his family. And women as well, adds Casa Marie. I think the time's come, Anastasia, as much as you might like having a deputy who's no real threat to you. It's probably not the best for your government long-term. Oh, and this was the Labor Day march in Brizzy, as posted on Twitter by PR consultant and Sky News commentator Lisa Goddard, with the tweet, quote, Remember the fight for veterans to march on Anzac Day? Just me? Yes. Priorities, anyone? The Prime Minister gave an important speech this week, important because it was a speech about values. I've been saying for a while that we need leaders to display their values and reveal their humanity. And Scott Morrison did just that in his speech to the Jewish community at a United Israel Appeal event in Sydney last Friday night. You've probably caught snippets on the news. This show is about giving you clips long enough to actually be meaningful before we start commenting on what's being said. So I'm gonna share about nine minutes of highlights from the full 22 minutes speech with you now, an opportunity for us to learn a little more about the values that drive our leadership.
1: I wanna talk about a topic tonight that is dear to your hearts, community, community of individuals. We heard it on the video, a nation of individuals. Now, as some of you may know, I and as Stephen has mentioned, I ha- have been deeply influenced in recent years by the writing of the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, and Julian is responsible for that, because he has thrust Jonathan Sachs works into the arms of anyone he could get a book into the hands of, rightly so, and I'm very grateful that he did, and on one occasion, he said, because I was consuming this, uh, that you better be careful, you might become Australia's first Jewish Prime Minister. <laughs> and I said, don't tell Josh. <laughs> But his books, Lessons in Leadership, Covenant and Conversation, Morality, his last work, have given me a more textured understanding of Judaism, my own Christian faith, and what unites us all as human beings. And I shared some of these learnings with my own church community last week at the Gold Coast with Stuart Robin at their national conference. And in his works, Rabbi Sachs wrestles, a bit like Jacob, wrestles with the practical complexities of our modern pluralistic world and finds, through the tenets of his faith as he did, a pathway to the common good. At the heart of our Judeo-Christian heritage are two words, human dignity. Everything else flows from this. And seeing the inherent dignity of all human beings is the foundation of morality. It makes us more capable of love and compassion, of selflessness and forgiveness, because if you see the dignity and worth of another person, another human being, the beating heart in front of you, you're less likely to disrespect them, insult or show contempt or hatred for them, or seek to cancel them as is becoming the fashion these days. You're less likely to be indifferent to their lives and callous towards their feelings. Now, those of Jewish faith understand this. As Rabbi Sachs said, the purpose of Judaism is to honour the image of God in other people. Reflecting the psalmist, people who are fearfully and wonderfully made. Such a beautiful idea. And it's one shared by many other faiths, including my own. Appreciating human dignity also fosters our sense of shared humanity. Now, This means that because we are conscious of our own failings and vulnerabilities, we can be more accepting and understanding of the failings and vulnerabilities of others. True faith and religion is about confronting your own frailties. It's about understanding your own and our shared humanity. And the result of that is a humble heart, not a pious or judgmental one.
0: The Prime Minister went on to say that human dignity and morality are foundational to our freedom because they restrain government to act for others, not itself. Hayek the Economist said the same thing. Freedom
1: has never worked without deeply ingrained moral beliefs. Acting to morally enhance the freedom of others ultimately serves to enhance our own freedom. So it's no surprise then that Rabbi Sachs concluded in his final work, morality, if you lose your own morality, you are in danger of losing your freedom. The implication here is very important. Liberty is not born of the state, but rests with the individual, for whom morality must be a personal responsibility. In Lessons in Leadership, he quotes the distinguished American Jurist Judge Leonard Hand to argue his point, who said, I often wonder whether we do not rest our hopes too much upon constitutions, upon laws and upon courts. He said, believe me, these are false hopes. He said, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women And when it dies there, no constitution, no law can save it. Freedom, therefore, rests on us taking personal responsibility for how we treat each other, based on our respect for and our appreciation of human dignity. This is not about state power. This is not about market power. This is about morality and personal responsibility.
0: Scott Morrison told The Gathering that we once understood our rights as being our protections from the state. Nowadays, we're defining as our rights as what we are entitled to from the state.
1: As citizens, we cannot allow what we think we are entitled to, to become more important than what we are responsible for. We must protect against those forces that would undermine that in community. And I don't just mean, as I've recently remarked, the social and moral corrosion caused by the misuse of social media and the abuse that occurs there, but I would say it also includes the growing tendency to commodify human beings through identity politics. We must never surrender the truth that the experience and value of every human being is unique and personal. You are more, we are more, individually, more than the things others try to identify us by, you by, in this age of identity politics. You are more than your gender. You are more than your race. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than your ethnicity. You are more than your religion, your language group, your age. All of these, of course, contribute to who we may be and the incredible diversity of our society, particularly in this country, and our place in the world. But of themselves, they are not the essence of our humanity. When we reduce ourselves to a collection of attributes, or divide ourselves even worse on this basis, we can lose sight of who we actually are as individual human beings. Throughout history, we've seen what happens when people are defined solely by the group they belong to, or an attribute they have, or an identity they possess. The Jewish community understands that better than any in the world.
0: The Prime Minister says it's individuals first acting in community, upon which the morality of the state and its laws are built, not the other way around.
1: There's another Jewish leader who's also influenced me in recent times, and on this occasion, it was Josh Frydenberg thrusting a book into my hand. And I know he's had a big impact on Josh, and I know I would say everybody in this room, and that's the Holocaust survivor, 101-year-old Eddie JQ. Eddie's book, The Happiest Man on Earth is a gift to us. I think he's taking the title of what I might have called my book sometime. But it is a great gift to Australia. He is a great gift to Australia. The book is a love letter to this country and I thank those of you who have come up to me tonight as Prime Minister, not me personally, but just representing the Australian nation and saying your thanks to what Australia has meant to you and your family. Of course, Eddie's story is harrowing, but it's also hopeful, of life in the Nazi concentration camps, of surviving Auschwitz, Buchenwald, and the Holocaust, and of course losing his family, but never losing his faith in humanity, finding friendship even amongst the absolute ruins. And after the end of the war, Eddie found a home here in Australia where he was welcomed with open arms, as so many of you or your family have been. Many of you know Eddie, because he's guided tens of thousands of people through the Sydney Jewish Museum. Eddie says of our country, a land where opportunities abound, and it is. Julian, Lisa has made the wonderful point that Australia is one of the few places on earth where Jewish people have not suffered persecution. We're not perfect, no country is, but we do have much to be proud of. We are a liberal free people, one of the oldest continuous democracies on the planet. We have an Indigenous heritage and a rich multicultural character, both adding a brilliance and joy to our national life and character. We seek to be a good neighbour in our family here in the Pacific and a good citizen in the world, playing our part, doing our share of the heavy lifting, meeting global challenges. We stand as a sovereign and free nation in an increasingly uncertain part of the world. We value and strive to preserve a liberal world order, where the strategic balance favours freedom always.
0: Now, ScoMo gave another speech a few days earlier at the National Conference of the Australian Christian Churches on Queensland's Gold Coast, where he spoke more about his personal faith. That speech saw the left get the knives out as they began to question his religious beliefs and the impact they're having on his governing. Kevin Rudd, no less, wrote in the left-wing newspaper The Guardian this week that, quote, There is a troubling section of Morrison's speech where he indicates that humans aren't capable of fixing problems on Earth. Instead, he says, that's the responsibility of God, and what the country needs, therefore, is the growth of the Church. The problem with this approach, says Rudd, is that it effectively consigns responsibility for poverty and the despoilation of the planet to powers beyond our control, as we drift to a utopian afterlife. It diminishes the role of human agency in fixing social and economic injustices. I don't know, Kevin. Listening to ScoMo's speech and looking at his life's work would suggest that he certainly believes in the role humans have to play in fixing social and economic injustices. It's not a case of humans being able to fix everything 100% or leaving everything to God 100%. Believing God will take care of everything, doing nothing, and just praying, was not the teaching of Jesus, I don't think, and I'm pretty sure it's not the teaching of the Pentecostal religions, as your editorial suggests. But likewise, believing man can fix everything 100% is an equally dangerous fallacy. A little humility and restraint from time to time doesn't hurt. On the right side of politics, we believe in the individual and small community defining the best balance between doing something and leaving things alone rather than the state always intervening. As the Prime Minister just said, that is best built upon a morality derived from individuals, family and small community. Big government and the state are far more likely to pervert morality with a centralized, detached, elite group of leaders and bureaucrats making rules on behalf of the many. The repeated utter failure of Marxism in the 20th century and the success of free market capitalism are a testament that we're on the right track. We don't want to be getting our values and sense of morality from the institutions of state. Our humanity doesn't lie there. It lies in our soul, our family, and our community, and for many Australians of many faiths, in their religion and spirituality. A secular society doesn't mean an atheist society where the state and its laws and institutions replace God and the individual. A secular society is one that's tolerant of many faiths and atheism and seeks a shared sense of morality informed by reason and science and the heart and the soul in balance. I am finding it hard this week to reconcile the values espoused by the Prime Minister, which I agree with, with the decision to leave Australians stranded in India with no way to get home, which I really do not agree with. Here's what renowned human rights lawyer Jeffrey Robertson has to say about it all. These directions aimed at Australians who happen to be in India at the moment
1: are objectionable on a number of counts. I think it could be argued that they relate only to times when there's a national emergency in Australia. There isn't, there's one in India. And, uh, but basically uh, they infringe Magna Carta and the idea of democracy.
0: That's Geoffrey Robertson speaking on ABC television. India has had 215,000 coronavirus deaths. Their population's almost 1.4 billion. So it'd be like Australia having about 4,000 deaths. It's not good. But the problem is accessing medical care if you get sick, leaving Aussies stranded and in fear. Australia's chief medical officer, Professor Paul Kelly, apparently warned the government that Aussies stuck in India face serious illness without healthcare. At a worst-case scenario of death under the ban. I wonder what the government plans to say if an Australian dies. Let's pray it doesn't happen. Despite the Magna Carta and all international conventions, constitutional lawyer Anne Toomey says Australian citizens don't have the automatic right to come home to Australia.
4: There's no explicit right for Australian citizens to live in Australia. You'd have to get the High Court to imply that right from the Constitution. But you'd also have to get the court to be satisfied that that was an absolute right. That is that you couldn't make any restrictions on it, even in circumstances where you had, for example, a, a pandemic as we do now.
0: That's constitutional lawyer Anne Toomey on the ABC's 7.30 report. Under the Biosecurity Act, those who somehow might sneak home via a third country face massive fines and even jail time. National Party Senator from Queensland, Matt Canavan, is one member of the government brave enough to stand up and say that that is morally wrong.
5: It is enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that there is a right for people to return to their own country. Now, now, obviously, in a global pandemic, we have quarantine systems that are in place. And if you are to return, you you have to 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 isolate yourself from the rest of the public. That makes sense. Uh, but to completely shut off that, 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 shut the door to Australians and then say, if you do happen to get back in, you're going to go to jail for five years. Or, I don't know. I don't pick up that, that. I think it's a bit of an overreaction. This is Australians we're talking about. These are not, not, not Indians living who want to come here. This is Australians who are stranded in another country, uh and I, I think we have an obligation to help australians in in distress uh, i reckon any of your listeners would think that they would like their own government to help them out if they are in that situation i cannot believe that the risk is that great to this country that we can't work out some kind of quarantine arrangements even if there's special arrangements for this high risk that we couldn't help australians come home
0: the government has had a year now to get quarantine right how hard is it to build a facility in the middle of the Northern Territory somewhere near an airport with a temporary hospital facility next to it for anyone who gets sick to be properly treated. Jacinda Redden is the former head of the Australian Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. She wrote on LinkedIn this week, quote, I'm alarmed by the federal government's treatment of fellow citizens in India who are now threatened with criminal sanctions should they try to return home. This sets a dangerous precedent and should concern any Australian living overseas. The government should remember that hundreds of thousands of Australians overseas vote, pay taxes, raise Australian citizens, are the children of Australian voters, with many of us engaged in furthering the nation's commercial interests overseas. This blow comes on top of the challenges facing many of us who have not seen family or met with business colleagues for well over a year. Funerals missed, grandchildren not hugged, farewells left unsaid, weddings missed, and now this. Many other expats chimed in to support the former OSCAM head. Richard James writes, Very worrying precedent, and can't think of another nation doing this to their own citizens. Pushing the responsibility of our border to the states, and the failure to invest in, and establish federal quarantine centres and standards is where the problem starts. And this from former Australian ambassador to Mongolia, Jong Langtree. Completely agree, Jacinta. Building proper quarantine facilities and giving our very competent overseas missions the resources to fly distressed Australians home is the least a competent and moral federal government could and should have done. Demonising demonizing them and threatening them with criminal prosecution is politically divisive, arrogant and most probably unconstitutional. This is a national disgrace driven by local small minded fear. It embarrassingly demonstrates Australia's general lack of understanding of the international marketplace and the important role our expats play in their contribution to Australia's international standing and ultimately for our local economy. It changes everything for many expats in terms of their sense of security as citizens, and will drive many global Australians to look for citizenship elsewhere and a backup passport. Unfortunately, here at home, the shut the borders and lockdown mentality seems to be playing exceptionally well for political leaders at the polls, and I suspect it won't change.
6: Well, now the news, it's all bad and there's no reason to smile. Have you ever noticed that about the news? Because the news is serious. You can’t joke all the time, Josh. I beg to differ. If you watch the People's Project, you'll see a lot of smiling. Watch the People's Project Friday night 7:30
2: pm.
0: This week Fox News host Steve Hilton has put the spotlight on the number of fatal shootings affecting children in America these days. Hilton makes a strong case for a return to valuing the family something the left hates to do, to ensure greater social cohesion, better raising of kids and less crime. The correlation between the decay of the family unit and American society is so strongly linked to social problems, it's hard to deny a causal link.
6: Adam Toledo, age 13, shot and killed in Chicago. Makaya Bryant, age 16, shot and killed in Columbus, Ohio. Anthony Thompson, 17, shot and killed in Knoxville, Tennessee. These terrible stories, have been used as fodder for the only debate the left seems to want these days about race. But we need to stop and think about what we're really seeing. There's no conceivable reason for a 13-year-old to be wandering the streets at 2.40 a.m. with a gun, for a 16-year-old to be screaming and fighting in broad daylight armed with a knife, for a 17-year-old to hide a gun in his hoodie at school. The problem, the crisis, is the collapse of family in America. You see it in those stories. You see it in the numbers. Where we once talked about divorce and family breakup, today, families are not even being formed in the first place. Our marriage rate is at its lowest ever recorded. Nearly a quarter of American children live with one parent and no other adult, more than three times the rate in the rest of the world. In 2019, 40% of children were born outside marriage. Nearly half a million American children in foster care without either parent, half a million. You see the consequences all around us, not just those in gangs or mixed up in crime and disorder, but an everyday, everywhere collapse of civilized standards, coarse, aggressive, rude, disrespectful behavior, children addicted to phones and screens at an earlier and earlier age, incapable of forming real healthy human relationships. It is a social and economic disaster. It's an economic disaster because we know that a stable family makes a huge difference to life chances and opportunity. If you're born in the bottom 20% of the income scale, your chances of reaching the top 20% are four times higher if your parents stay married. Your chances of staying in the bottom 20% if your parents never married, it's 50-50. But if your parents are married, it drops to just 17%. Marriage makes a massive difference in keeping families stable. On average, if parents are married, three-quarters are still together by the time their child is 12. If they're just living together, it's only a quarter.
0: That's Steve Hilton on his Fox News show, The Next Revolution, with a deep dive on the data about family breakdown and social problems. Substance abuse, mental illness and crime are all more common in disrupted families too, according to other research that Hilton shared. This should be a warning for Australia. While we must never judge people in single-parent families, we also shouldn't normalize the idea of single-parent families to the point where we actively create them. Family is a core unit of social stability, and it's one that Marxists everywhere, like any cult, attack first. The state can't become your mummy or daddy, unless you reject real mummy and daddy first.
6: If you care about poverty, inequality, social mobility, crime, substance abuse, mental health, as we have comprehensively established with the data, you should want to see more stable families, which means more marriage. So let's incentivize that for goodness sake. Is there anything more deserving of subsidy? As with so many things with the establishment, their furious opposition to policies that promote family stability is the most enormous hypocrisy, because there is actually one part of our society where family stability is going up, not down, where marriage rates are increasing, not falling. Yep. Among the rich and educated. And in fact, there's another place marriage is increasing. Gay and lesbian Americans are getting married. I think that's great. It's a vote of confidence in one of the institutions conservatives most cherish. So I've always been for marriage equality. In fact, I believe in marriage equality so much, I even think straight people should get married if they want to raise a family. The marriage problem in America is not that gay people are getting married. It's that straight people aren't. We must rebuild the American family. And that starts with marriage. Raising a family is hard As Tim Scott said this week, single parents do a heroic job, but it's not a criticism of single parents to state plainly that it's better for a child to be raised by two parents, not one.
0: That's Steve Hilton on Fox News with some good old common sense backed by science. I've often said on this show that the biggest threat to Australia is the way in which our culture is shifting or has shifted. In fact, the main reason I decided to do this show is because living abroad for 20 years, I've seen Australian culture shift in some pretty sad ways. We've gone from a nation of people who are ruggedly independent, to a nation of people who seem to want big daddy government to take care of everything. We've gone from a nation of people who like people to be given a fair go, but then expect them to step up and go, to one who just wants equity, sort of fairness, without any go being required at all. Instead of minding our own business and letting people make up their own minds about things, we want rules, rules, rules to be set to force people to behave as we think they should behave. And as we all know, when you invite other people to take control of your life, they will. As the great American economist Thomas Sowell says, there's no shortage of people who want to tell other people how to live their lives. So why have we turned ourselves into a nation of kids who expect mummy and daddy and the government to look after us? To make life fair and nice. To take out all the bumpy, hurty bits. Well, there's a great payback for acting like children. You don't have to grow up. You don't have to do the hard stuff. Most wonderful of all, you don't have to take responsibility for where you are at in your life. You get to blame external forces. But that's not you. The kind of Aussies who watch this show are the kind who want their freedom back. The kind who don't want big government. But there's not many of us. Why? Because most people nowadays don't even know there is an alternative to big government. We're so surrounded by it. The culture expects government to step in and fix everything. And if the Tasmanian election on the weekend shows us anything, just like the Queensland and WA elections before it, it's that people want that. We want our politicians to take away our liberties to protect us. So if you're a classical liberal like me, or a libertarian or a traditional free market economic conservative, If you don't want government policing you like a child, if you still have the old Aussie spirit of rebellion and healthy distrust of authority in your bones, then this is a very sad time. And I don't think the answer lies solely in changing our politics, because no truly liberal politician can get elected when all the voters want is anything but liberty. The present day Liberal Party is as big government and power loving, almost, as the left. And that's understandable, because if you're a politician, there's no point in being in opposition. Until we, the people, start telling pollies we want something different, we can't blame them for what we've got. So how do we fix this problem? Well, the sad reality is that we may not be able to. If we can, it's certainly going to take a long time. The left's done a multi-generational job of infiltrating the institutions of our culture. And that is where we have to start. Number one is education. Number two is the media. Number three is religion and spirituality. The first two greatly lack political diversity in this country. They both tow the neo-Marxist critical theory line and where they don't, like in the Murdoch media sometimes, this is treated as some kind of cultural sin, just ask Malcolm and Kevin. Traditional Christianity and religions are on the downslide in Australia, replaced by the bright and shiny new age you can have it all kind of spiritual philosophies. The sense of service, duty, self-sacrifice and responsibility inherent in so many traditional religions has been cast aside for the gimme, gimme, you owe me and it's my right thinking. And this shift isn't the millennials' fault. Oh no, we don't get off the hook that easily, you and me. It just took that long to notice. It started with the boomers and Gen X. It started with us a good 50 plus years ago. So I'm not optimistic. It's hard for any podcast or any media outlet to attract viewers who are prepared to hear the hard stuff and go against the grain of believing Australia is the greatest country on earth and waving the flag in jingoistic fury. It's certainly the most blessed country on earth and probably the luckiest, but are we really a great nation of great people right now? I think we've got a bit of a way to go. That's a hard message for a commercial TV or radio host to deliver without people turning off, just as well I don't have to care so much about that anymore, maybe. But it sure would make it hard to be a politician who told the absolute truth in this country. And that is probably why our politics hasn't attracted the most balanced, well-rounded kinds of leaders until recently. Sky News Australia's documentary on former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd aired this week. Turnbull and Rudd have been waging a campaign against Rupert Murdoch lately, so a doco like this was probably inevitable. But I don't think Chris Smith was motivated by any phone calls or orders from New York as much as the timing and topic would have been appreciated. The similarity in the personalities of these two men and the way that they behave since losing office is screaming for comparison. This is a clip of what Kevin Rudd's brother, Greg, told Chris Kenny in the Sky News documentary, Man in the Mirror.
4: I was brought up um, in the same uh, room as Kevin, but on the wall were sort of posters of empire. He was always fascinated with the rise and fall of empires how you get authority, how you keep authority, and and how to rise through those systems. How do you become a leader? Uh, With the absolute 100% belief that if he got there, he would make the world a better place. I'd say Malcolm's similar. (laughs) Very similar, yeah. Is your brother a good man? Um, We can all look in the mirror and say the same thing. Um, Does he think he's a good person? Yes. Um, Have I seen him, out of the light of politics, do good things that will never be reported? Have I seen him do that a lot through life? Yes, I have. Um, So, to answer that, I'd say uh, look at any leader uh, on no matter what side of politics. uh, Any leader has got to the top, ask the same question and say they're a mix of good, bad and pragmatic necessity. It
0: was hard to come away from this doco, not shaking one's head at the lack of national interest and the enormous amount of personal interest that both of these men embodied. Ruthless ambition and a sense of entitlement drove them both. And when they fell, they both felt like they'd been denied something to which they were entitled. Since leaving office, they've continued to desperately strive for public relevance. But in doing so, they've diminished their greatest asset, the dignity of the great office they once held. It was a sad documentary in a way, two very sad, frustrated old men, but products of their time, products of the sense of entitlement rather than service that I spoke of earlier. Repeatedly, the interviewees spoke of the great intelligence of these two men, despite their flawed personalities. But intelligence is more than just raw intellect and the ability to speed-read lots of tedious government documents and make sense of them quickly. Real intelligence is balanced and also requires social and emotional intelligence. Ask any mid-level corporate leader. And as a very outside observer, I can't really see a lot of that in either of these men. The documentary concluded with a suggestion that perhaps Scott Morrison should find jobs for them both in which they can serve the country to give them something productive to do and use their great intellects. I'm not sure that's such a great idea. They have plenty of business interests to keep them occupied without needing to go on the taxpayer's dime. These guys have one big thing in common. They've both proven that serving the country is their number two priority. Anyway, back to what I was saying earlier about the culture needing to change before we'll get better politicians. Number one in cultural change is education. We have two generations, maybe three, of left-wing critical theory pretending to be a decent form of intellectual thought, infecting our unis and our teachers. So what is neo-Marxist critical theory? It's the academic rubbish that sits behind wokeism and identity politics. Jordan Peterson explains best in this excellent PragerU video.
2: You may not realize it, but you are currently funding some dangerous people. They are indoctrinating young minds throughout the West with their resentment-ridden ideology. They have made it their life's mission to undermine Western civilization itself, which they regard as corrupt, oppressive and patriarchal. If you're a taxpayer or paying for your kid's liberal arts degree, you're underwriting this gang of nihilists. The language police who enshrine into law use of fabricated gender pronouns, and the deans whose livelihoods depend on madly rooting out discrimination where little or none exists. Their thinking took hold in western universities in the 60s and 70s when the true believers of the radical left became the professors of today. And now we rack up education-related debt, not so that our children learn to think critically, write clearly, or speak properly, but so they can model their mentor's destructive agenda. It's now possible to complete an English degree and never encounter Shakespeare.
0: Shakespeare, Professor Peterson goes on to point out, is one of those dead white males whose work underlies the inherent oppression in our society. You might have seen this in the paper on the weekend. Revisions to the Australian school curriculum were revealed this week after a year-long review requested by the Education Council in response to concerns about the nation's declining academic results. The changes included more critical theory content about the invasion of Australia and the significance of First Nations people, and plans to use questionable and untested educational methods to teach the basics. Just what the doctor didn't order. Immediately, it was slammed by more conservative education philosophers like University of Queensland Emeritus, Professor Kenneth Wiltshire, Who told the Australian newspaper this week that ACARA, the Curriculum and Assessment Reporting Authority, funded by you, the taxpayer, should be abolished. We will create a nation of cretins awash in a world where they have no understanding of the history of civilisation, human thought, human philosophy, values or principles which have produced lessons to be acknowledged by all societies, Professor Wiltshire said. We might already be too late. How about this an idea instead of governments and bureaucrats and academics burning through our hard-earned tax dollars trying to work out what the best curriculum will be which a blind man could see isn't going to work because everyone's pushing their own political agendas why don't we apply the free market to education hand out education vouchers to everyone of equivalent value instead of trying to run schools and let the free market run the schools Then some horrible things will happen, like parents could choose what they want their kids to be brainwashed with and which school to send them to. Teachers could work for the schools they want to. Good teachers would be promoted and be in demand and be paid more, and then teaching would become a coveted profession. And bad teachers would be spat out by the market. It's called accountability. Good schools would become great schools. Education theory would actually be market-tested and would improve, lifting all schools. All schools. And the government's job would simply be to measure the school's outcomes to ensure we're meeting global metrics. The basics are covered. Nothing more. Now, it seems radical, but it only seems radical to us as Aussies because we've never considered this approach before. Freedom and liberty will fix the system because everyone can then choose what they want instead of us all having to have our kids brainwashed by a curriculum decided upon by a bunch of bureaucrats sitting in a room pushing their pet intellectual theories. You know, the free market actually works, folks. The profit motive is a good thing, and education is an area where we do not need or want Big Brother sticking its nose in. But back to Jordan Peterson. He says if we're going to successfully oppose the post-modernists, the identity politics woke neo-Marxists,
2: we need to understand their worldview. First is their new unholy trinity of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity is defined not by opinion, but by race, ethnicity, or sexual identity. Equity is no longer the laudable goal of equality of opportunity, but the insistence on equality of outcome. And inclusion is the use of identity-based quotas to attain this misconceived state of equity. All the classic rights of the West are to be considered secondary to these new values. Take, for example, freedom of speech, the very pillar of democracy. The postmodernists refuse to believe that people of goodwill can exchange ideas and reach consensus. Their world is instead a Hobbesian nightmare of identity groups warring for power. They don't see ideas that run contrary to their ideology as simply incorrect. They see them as integral to the oppressive system they wish to supplant, and consider it a moral obligation to stifle and constrain their expression. Second is rejection of the free market, of the very idea that free, voluntary trading benefits everyone. They won't acknowledge that capitalism has lifted up hundreds of millions of people so they can, for the first time in history, afford food, shelter, clothing, transportation, even entertainment and travel. Those classified as poor in the U.S., and increasingly everywhere else, are able to meet their basic needs. Meanwhile, in once prosperous Venezuela, until recently the poster child of the campus radicals, the middle class lines up for toilet paper. Third and finally are the politics of identity. Postmodernists don't believe in individuals. You're an exemplar of your race, sex, or sexual preference. You're also either a victim or an oppressor. No wrong can be done by anyone in the former group, and no good by the latter. Such ideas of victimization do nothing but justify the use of power and engender intergroup conflict. All these concepts originated with Karl Marx, the 19th century German philosopher. Marx viewed the world as a gigantic class struggle, the bourgeoisie against the proletariat, the grasping rich against the desperate poor. But wherever his ideas were put into practice, in the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, and Cambodia, to name just a few, whole economies failed and tens of millions were killed. We fought a decades-long Cold War to stop the spread of those murderous notions, but they're back in the new guise of identity politics. The corrupt ideas of the postmodern neo-Marxists should be consigned to the dustbin of history. Instead, we underwrite their continuance in the very institutions where the central ideas of the West Should be transmitted across the generations. Unless we stop.
0: Yes. Let's stop it, shall we? The Melbourne International Comedy Festival wrapped up about two weeks ago. American stand-up comic Arj Barker performed among many others. ABC TV put together a little television gala special. And since we've been deeply discussing the spiritual fabric of our nation this week, I thought the perspective of an outsider might be a good choice for our comedy section.
3: I've travelled all around this country and everywhere I go, people have always been nice to me and nice to each other. Let's face it, Australia is a friendly country. (laughs) Until a global pandemic strikes. (laughs) And then the various states and territories split up into feuding warlord realms. And it becomes something that more resembles Game of Thrones. Like, lower the gates, raise the bridge! The Victorians approach! (laughs) And I was here for all of 2020 and I did it hard with you guys. And now I know, now I know how it feels to be a leprous, feral outcast. But we did what we had to do, didn't we? And, and, And it wasn't fun. They said it was one of the strictest lockdowns in modern history. And it wasn't fun. Nobody liked it. Some people complained. Like, Dictator Dan! (laughs) Dictator Dan did this to us! But I never said that. Because I think that's a pretty disrespectful way to refer to Warden Andrews. (laughs) He's just trying to do his job, man. How about we take responsibility, huh? We screwed up. We broke the law. And we had to go into our houses and stay there until we learned a lesson. And we did our time, and we're back on the streets. But I wouldn't say we're free, it's more like parole. Because I know if we fuck up, we're going right back in. And I can't speak for all you other guys out here in Melbourne, but I admit it, I'm struggling on the outside. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, covered in sweat, and for a split second, I think I'm back in the big house. And I am, because I live there. The the pandemic is serious, and, 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 you know, we did what we had to do. Then they had a few cases up in Sydney around the holidays, and they'd had such a clean run-up until then that they didn't know how to feel about it. Some people were indignant. They're like, what? What do you mean people from Sydney can't travel to Melbourne?
0: The South remembers. (laughs) That's American comedian Arj Barker at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. The link to the official YouTube site and the full clip is in our program notes. Well, that's it for the show this week. We'll see you again next week. We upload on Wednesday nights on Discernible and a bit later on the Good Source platform. And don't forget to subscribe on all platforms and tell your friends about the show to help us grow. If you prefer to listen rather than watch, you can do so on YouTube. That's perfectly fine. Or you can check us out on the podcast platform of your choice. Don't forget, we need your help. Do support us. Stay free. And don't let the woke kids get you down